We finish up our series <clears throat> this week of uh, the title that we had, Amazing uh, Change, Acts chapter 9. We've looked at Paul's, uh, Saul's conversion uh, to uh, not only being a Christian, but uh, the change of his name from being Saul the persecutor to Paul the apostle. And uh, for the last uh, a little more than eight weeks now, we've spent a couple weeks in uh, a couple of our uh, parts in this series, we've looked at what it means to have life change and how that life change takes place uh, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, what I hope you've learned in this series are uh, a couple things. Number one, as we look at the life of Paul, especially his conversion, we realize that we are all sinners in need of salvation. Every one of us is in need of salvation. The second thing that we uh, need to pull away from this series is that salvation is found in a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Remember, Saul meets Jesus. Saul comes face to face with Jesus. We too need to come face to face with Jesus. Maybe not on the road uh, to Damascus, uh, but face to face with him in a spiritual way, in a real way that changes who we are, our perceptions on life, our perceptions on ourself and our sin. And it starts with that encounter with Jesus. Then we moved beyond that and we learned a couple other things, and that is that a life that is truly in Christ must be characterized by a couple things. Number one, we looked at Saul's life and we saw that it began, uh, had begun to be characterized by prayer. He was a man of prayer. It started early in his relationship with Christ and it would go on for the rest of his life. We see that it was important for him to fellowship with other Christians. How important it is for all of us, not only to be uh, characterized by prayer, but by fellowship, that all of us would come together. Even though we're different, even though we have different backgrounds and, and even different uh, ideas and thoughts of uh, what we do or where we're going to go, all of us come together under the banner of Jesus Christ. And that's important for us not just to be casually involved in fellowship, but to be aggressively involved in the fellowship with the saints. The next thing we learn is that we need to be filled by the Spirit. This isn't a one-time thing. Paul wasn't just filled on the road to Damascus uh, when uh, he met Jesus, but it is a constant filling, being filled at all times and being filled uh, to the full measure of what Christ would have for us. We will never do what God wants us to do until you and I are filled uh, by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And that's important as we learned in Acts chapter 9. Next, we learned about a life of dedication of service. Uh, we can't call ourselves Christians if we're unwilling to serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul showed us right away that service was a key element in the amazing change that took place in his life. The next thing we talked about was a life that is dedicated to proclaiming Christ. Again, we can't say that we've experienced this incredible life change. We can't say that we've had this incredible experience. We can't uh, talk that way if we're unwilling to share it with all those around us. If it's such good news, why would we hold it back? If it's such great news, why would we keep it to ourselves? Saul shows us right away in Acts chapter 9 that it isn't to be kept to ourselves. It's to be announced, to be proclaimed to all the world. So today we kind of finish on a, on a bummer of a note. All these great things that we've learned about, all these important aspects of the Christian life and, and what it means to us and what must be uh, characterized in our lives to come to this final one. 
a fearlessness in suffering. After all that Saul has done, this amazing change, the last part of our text, verses 23 through 31, we see that God doesn't just allow blessing upon blessing to fall upon Saul, that man, he signed on the dotted line and everything turned out great and Saul lived happily ever after. You don't see that in Acts 9. You don't see that he goes out and he uh, becomes Billy Graham of the first uh, century and, and thousands upon thousands of people uh, join his church and he becomes the radio pastor of Palestine and, and Damascus and that area. No, none of that takes place. In fact, we hear quite the opposite begins to take place. So I want us to stand as we look to God's Scripture this morning. I want to read all, and I know some of you may get worried that it's a long passage, but I want to look at the whole story as we close out this series to bring everything into context. We're going to read all 31 verses of Saul's conversion, and then we're going to get into our text this morning. This is what uh, Acts 9.1 says, as Luke tells us it. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Verse 10 tells us, in Damascus there was a certain, uh, or there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Let's remember verse 16 as we look to today's passage. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. 
Now, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but all of them were, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened. It was encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Father God, we come before you uh, closing out this incredible 31 verses of Acts chapter 9. Lord, I pray that you will uh, continue to teach us long after this series is over of what we are to be because we are in you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this place who is on that road to Damascus, that, Lord, you would bring them to yourself this morning, that you would open their eyes, Lord, that they may see you for who you are, that they would, as Saul did, fall to the ground and worship you uh, and asking, what must I do now? Lord, I pray for those who have already had that experience, who will be filled with your spirit, who will become people of prayer, who will uh, be those who will be involved in service and be involved in uh, the fellowship of the saints. So, Lord, we can go out and proclaim your name to all those around us. But, Lord, as we know, as the story ends, that there will be trouble. There will be trials and there will be tribulation. Lord, I pray that we will be equal to the task that you have of us, that we will be able to stand in the times of persecution and the times of trouble that will be brought to us, those who carry the name of Christ. So, Lord, uh, teach us this morning on how to be fearless in our suffering so that we may bring glory and honor to you and you alone. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. When I was in the fifth grade, we had a bully in our class who had the first name of Paul. Paul was a guy that you did not want to find yourself alone in a room with. Paul was a scary guy. I was bigger than Paul, but I was scared to death of Paul. He carried that, that kind of that aura of the classic bully. He had everybody believing he was the toughest guy in the class. You didn't mess around with Paul. You didn't do anything that would make Paul angry. 
Now, Paul had a, a bunch of friends, and, and while they weren't as tough as him, uh, they were as tough as anybody in the class. And these guys would go around and they would take lunch money from kids. They would uh, take away your swing. They would take away the ball that you were playing with at recess. You name it, uh, they would do it. And I remember uh, always being fearful of what Paul uh, might do to me. I know my friends were always worried about what Paul and his line of uh, fifth grade thugs uh, would do to uh, any of us nice kids. And uh, I'll never forget the first day of the sixth grade. I remember being scared to death because I had heard stories that if you didn't like Paul in the fifth grade, there were a whole bunch of Pauls in the sixth through eighth grades. And that you had to be careful who you hung out with and, and you had to be careful where you went. You make sure you, you know, covered all your, uh, all your different areas that you made sure you didn't get into any trouble when it came to these bullies. I'll never forget the first day of the sixth grade. While I was worried about getting, uh, roughed up, getting worried about having someone bully me around, it wasn't me that got bullied around. It was Paul. And I remember looking down the hallway, seeing a commotion take place, and there's Paul, the guy I was most afraid of, who in fact didn't look very uh, scary anymore because he was now having an eighth grader, much bigger than him, bullying him around. You know what happened to Paul after that first day of the sixth grade? He changed. He changed. He was no longer the bully. His friends no longer went around and fighting people and, and hurting people. Uh, they became actually pretty cool guys. The reason why is, is Paul learned a valuable lesson. Paul wasn't the greatest. Paul wasn't the strongest. Paul wasn't the baddest. And what he began to learn is if he wanted to really uh, find success in life, he had to stop going around beating up people and start really making some friends, really start to change who he was. Now, that's a true story. Even though the name corresponds with our lesson this morning, Paul in the Bible was a bully. He used to go around and he used to inflict pain on people that didn't agree with him. And yet after this experience on the road to Damascus, something transpires in Paul's life that he learns he's not the strongest. He's not the baddest. He's not the one who can inflict pain uh, the toughest or, or the worst. In fact, it wasn't him. He wasn't even in the same league as this other one because he learned about a, a person named Jesus. And while Jesus was no bully in any way, he was stronger, he was smarter, he had everything going for him where Paul didn't, even though Paul for a long time thought he had it going for him. And when Paul is brought to his knees, it changes who he is. Because we learn today in the end of this series that Paul the prosecutor, uh, the, um, not the prosecutor, persecutor, thank you, he wasn't a lawyer that we know of. Uh, uh, the persecutor becomes Paul the persecuted. He becomes persecuted. It says that they want to kill him. We need to learn a little bit about this idea of persecution. Even before we get into our text this morning, I want to give us an understanding because we in America have no idea we have no idea what it means when we see these words, when we read Luke's words. We have no idea unless you've spent some time somewhere else. And I know there are some here. We just heard a testimony uh, from some faithful people, Gary and Jamie, who have gone. And they are in a place of great persecution. 
And we pray that, uh, that they are not uh, impacted in great ways as a result of that, but they live that every day. And some others of us who have lived in other places in Africa and Asia have seen persecution firsthand. But I got to tell you, I felt a little odd preparing for this as a man who has had nothing but good in my life. Time magazine a year ago spoke about my generation being the generation that has not been impacted by any major thing other than September 11. That's it. And they were talking about what would it do when all the economic things come to pass? Would my generation be able to rise to the occasion of other generations that have never seen this type of crisis take place? Well, just like my generation that hasn't really tasted a lot of pain, a lot of suffering here in America, we too are a church that has not seen persecution. And so we have to be prepared for it. We have to understand it. And we have to make sure that our thoughts and our minds are set on the right direction. So we need to get, first of all, a definition. A definition of what persecution is. I looked at a lot of different ones. And uh, this one I, I like the best. Uh, it's, it's an older definition, but I like what it has to say. Albert Barnes, a commentator, uh, said this, The essence of persecution consists in subjecting a person to injury or disadvantage on account of his opinions. It is something more than meeting his opinions by argument, which is always right and proper. It is inflicting some injury on him, depriving him of some privilege or right, subjecting him to some disadvantage or placing him, excuse me, in less favorable circumstances on account of his sentiments. Now let's understand that a little bit. The essence of persecution, let's start with the first one, is subjecting a person to injury or disadvantage on account of his opinions or, or uh, beliefs, you could uh, put in there as well. It's something more than meeting his opinions by argument. When someone argues with you about the faith, when someone argues with you about Jesus Christ and doesn't agree with you, Barnes says that's not persecution. In fact, he says this is always right and proper. Barnes is saying this is a good thing. If you can get someone to argue uh, with you, uh, that's a good thing. That's communication. That's you debating and dialoguing about uh, the difference of your beliefs. But he said it is inflicting injury on the individual. It involves depriving them of their privileges or rights or subjecting them to disadvantage. So what does all that mean? We need to understand a couple things. According to this definition, the following is not persecution. The culture wars that Christians fight in America, please hear me, are not opportunities or instances of persecution. When you uh, listen on Moody Radio and you hear about what we call the culture wars, that's not persecution. That's culture wars. That is us as believers trying to live in a non-Christian world and our view and the world's view colliding and creating warfare, if you will. That's not persecution. People who think ill of you is not persecution. It may mean you're just a jerk. That's what it may mean, or you're not very funny, or you're not whatever it may be. But you can't use the title, well, I've been persecuted. My brother used to come all the time uh, home from school, and my brother had such fervor and such zeal for the gospel that he would go to our high school, and he would tell people that they're heading to hell and they need to know Jesus. Like He was kind of like John the Baptist, you know, walking through the halls of Hinkley Big Rock. 
And what he would come home and, and he would find, and we'd find out he got beat up and, and, uh, people would, uh, you know, knock him into lockers and he'd come home and at dinner time he would say, I was persecuted for the faith. And my parents would say, really? Wow, what happened? And I'd say, you don't know what happened. Joel was screaming at the individual that they needed to know Jesus. And they knocked him out of the way. Now, Joel wasn't persecuted. And Joel just had too much zeal in it and it got him into some trouble. It wasn't persecution per se. It was more some of what we bring into it that people were fighting. Losing a friend or family member because of your beliefs isn't persecution. It's a sad occurrence. It's something that we should be saddened by, but it isn't persecution. Having arguments with people who don't agree with your Christianity isn't persecution. So what is? When you're mocked or you have verbal assassinations take place based on your faith, that's persecution. When you're physically beaten for your faith, that's persecution. When you're told you must leave your home and head to another land because of the way you worship or believe, that's persecution. When you lose a promotion at work because your faith does not allow you uh, to do certain things, well, that's persecution. When you're jailed for your beliefs, that's persecution. When you're deprived of any personal right or opportunity on the sole basis of your belief and in our belief in Jesus Christ, then we have suffered persecution. So no matter what you constitute as persecution or not, you have to have a right definition. And so we need to look at not only the definition, but there are five things I need to quickly move through today in this idea of suffering in the aspects of persecution. The first one is we need to recognize the reality of persecution. Now, for many of us, uh, this is probably one of the first messages you've heard on persecution. I, I know this is the first one I've preached in my short amount of, of time, and, and there are very few that I saw over the Internet uh, or on uh, radio ministries that I could sit back and listen to how someone has shared. There's not many of them. The reason why is most radio and most Internet uh, ministries are focused here in America. And the last thing that we see here in America is just blatant persecution. We still enjoy a wonderful golden age that the Christian faith is still accepted here in America. But that wasn't always the case, and I know it's still not the case in many places. But persecution is something that the people of God have dealt with all the way back to the Old Testament. You look at the people, the children of Israel, in the time, in the bondage of Egypt, where they were brought into slavery. They were kept from many aspects of their worship. We see it in the exiles that take place, where they were told that they could no longer worship the God that they loved, the God whom they had seen do great things. But now they had to worship kings and other rulers and other gods. We saw persecution with the three Hebrew boys who would not bow to the idol uh, that was made of Nebuchadnezzar. We see the prophet like Elijah who would not worship Baal, uh, would not worship the god Baal, uh, but would only worship Jehovah. And as a result of that, he has to run away from Jezebel and King Ahab because they are trying to persecute him to end his life. The New Testament speaks of this reality. Our Lord and Savior was persecuted. He was persecuted to the place of being nailed to a cross. Jesus Christ suffered persecution. The epistles and the letters in the New Testament speak of persecution. In fact, First Peter, Hebrews, and the book of Revelation have major parts dedicated to how we must live as believers in spite of persecution. 
we would know that throughout history, persecution, even beyond the biblical times, would be something that would be uh, affecting us as believers. Nero, uh, in the middle to the end of the uh, first century, uh, would burn Rome and blame it on the Christians so that all-out persecution could take place. And Nero, the uh, Roman emperor, of course, then would bring in Christians into the Colosseum. And they become sport, watching them fight for their lives, whether to, through animals or whether through one another. It was his idea of American gladiators, except it didn't end in a prize. It ended in death for believers. So the Bible's full of persecution. But before we move beyond that, something that we need to understand uh, very clearly this morning And that is that we are not the only ones who have suffered persecution. In fact, not only are we not the only ones who have suffered persecution, but there has been persecution uh, by Christians in the name of God. You would say, well, wait a minute. We're the ones who have been knocked down. Isn't that that passage? We're knocked down from every side. We've been crushed. Uh, we've been pushed back. Aren't we the ones that have all the reason to uh, shake our fists and say the world has done these terrible injustices to us as Christians? Not the case, because sadly in our history, the church and Christians have found themselves on the aggressor side of persecution. The Crusades are a wonderful example of this. Why do we do this? Well, Saul is an incredible pattern of why. Because we think we know what is right, and we're going to put it on everybody, and as a result of that, we are going to stop anybody who doesn't do what we want them to do. Is that true Christianity? No. That's as true of Christianity, uh, or that's, that is true, that is not true Christianity as much as Saul was not a true, uh, believer when he was putting Stephen to death. We gotta make sure we understand that we have persecuted, uh, many people throughout history as well. But what about today? What about today? Well, we see the reality of persecution happening today. It's just not happening much in America. Let me read a couple uh, stories with you. March 8th, 2008, the Christianity Today magazine said a military court in Iran has sentenced Christian pastor Hamid Purmond to jail for three years and ordered his immediate transfer to a group prison cell in Tehran's notorious Evan prison, a move denounced by international Christian human rights groups. The reason why was that uh, Praman had converted from Islam to Christianity some 25 years ago. And as a result of that, several ex-Muslims converted to Christianity. And as a result of that, many of them have been assassinated or executed by court order under the guise of accusations of spying for foreign countries. In Nigeria, February 3rd, the Compass Direct reported this. Muslim militants pronounced a death sentence on five Christian students expelled from public schools in November for being caught doing evangelism. The families of two of the students, I'm not going to even try to pronounce their names, were then attacked on January 26th when militants went to their house. They pulled them out of the house and they killed them in the streets. Nigeria, March 4th, the Compass Direct reports this. Muslim militants attacked Christian community in Demza village in the Adamawa state in northern Nigeria. It, they killed 36 Christians and displacing another 3,000 who had been involved in worship. India, the Christian monitor, says this, Insurgents in India, and we've heard about India this last week, are threatening to start killing evangelical leaders 
uh, and totally destroy the country's leading missionary organization unless it pays a ransom of $186,000 to avoid more bloodshed. The terrorists say that they will target U.S.-backed gospel for Asia and especially the organization's five Bible colleges, their 70 Bridge of Hope schools, and 750 believer church congregations in India's uh, troubled northeastern state of Assam. We have persecution taking place. But persecution for me uh, came to a real reality uh, the, in the last couple years. Now, many of you know I am uh, of an Assyrian uh, background. My father comes from Baghdad. And for years, my father uh, experienced, my father attended a Presbyterian church in Baghdad. That's where he came to know uh, the faith and understand the faith. He was uh, led to the Lord by a group of navigators, young teenagers who were navigators, who came and shared the gospel with him. And even under Saddam Hussein, when my, my father left in 66, so he didn't know about Saddam at that point, but even under Saddam Hussein, uh, the Assyrian people, Assyrian Christians, we're not Muslim, we're Christian. We can link our uh, lineage back to Father Abraham. Uh, we, we, we had wonderful times, if you will, my people did, uh, under the rule of a, of a great dictator. Saddam Hussein was a secular uh, governor or uh, dictator. And as a result of that, the Assyrian Christians did not suffer uh, persecution. In Iraq, in Iraq, uh, 800,000 Assyrians uh, were living there under the reign of Saddam Hussein in relative ease uh, as a result of his secular standing. But that changed when we went into Iraq and we began to uh, establish a new government. Some of you have heard this, others haven't, but more than 500,000 uh, Assyrian Christians have left Iraq because of uh, religious persecution. Let me share some uh, quick stories from you. October 11th this year in Baghdad, CNN reported that at least 900 Christian families have fled from Mosul in the past week, terrified by a series of killings and threats by Muslim extremists, ordering them to convert to Islam or face death. It is reported that uh, 13 Christians already have been slain in the last three days. On Easter Sunday, Sargon Oshana was shot in the head by two bullets. He died later suffering from wounds after struggling for his life in a Baghdad hospital. Sargon had participated in the special Easter Sunday services at Mar Elia Church. He left the church on his way home to celebrate the Easter feast and was intercepted by Muslim fundamentalists who shot him and left him for dead. Listen to this. A Canadian parliamentary committee studying the persecution of religious minorities worldwide heard that since the Iraq war started in 2003, about 12 children, many of them as young as eight, have been kidnapped and killed. They have been nailed to makeshift crosses near their homes to terrify and torment their Christian parents. Listen to this. I pardon if it's a little graphic. One infant in particular was snatched, decapitated, with each of its limbs being amputated and then burned and left at his mother's doorstep. The committee was told that one in every three Iraqi Assyrian Christians is now a refugee. This comes close to home. When we get together as a family, we pray uh, for our brothers and sisters who are fighting incredible persecution. It is a reality, my friends. It is a reality. We must understand it's not happening here in America, but it is happening to our brothers and sisters around the world. It wasn't too long ago in the month of September that we invited a a Chinese house church leader who had been beaten, 
who had been abused, who had been left for dead, who had been imprisoned because of one thing. His goal and his desire was to live for Christ. And what he learned is that he may have to die as a result of it. We live in a world of persecution. So why do we talk about persecution? Not just because it's reality somewhere else, but because one day the story isn't going to be about Baghdad. It is going to be a story that says Dateline, Chicago, Illinois, and it's going to talk about believers being persecuted for their faith. It's going to happen. Will it happen in the next 10 years? Who knows? But it will happen. There's a reality. Well, what are the reasons? Let's look next to the reasons for persecution. If you understand why persecution has been around for all these years, then the basis of persecution has to have a re- there has to be a reason for it. There has to be a, a, a cause and effect that has taken place. The very spiritual cause and effect is that uh, the devil and the world hates believers. Remember the Bible says that there would be enmity in Genesis chapter 3 between the devil and its offsprings and the woman and hers. And there would be this war that would be going on. Persecution is a culmination of that great prophecy in Genesis 3.15. The unregenerate world fighting, clawing, doing all that it can to stop uh, the believers and the pronouncement of Christ as their Savior. That's a big one. And Jesus said that he would, uh, as he was hated in this world, so we would be hated as well. Now notice what we need to understand about this reasons. The reasons here that we have persecution is, first of all, it is for many a, a part of their destiny as Christians. It's the destiny of many Christians. In Second uh, Timothy, if you want to turn there for a moment, Second Timothy chapter uh, 3, if you're in the book of Acts, go to your right to Second Timothy Chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to what this same Paul says to his disciple Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says this, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now what does he mean by that? The Greek there literally means that if you, uh, when it says, uh, let's see here, I need to go back to my text here. Uh, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life, that is the, the important part of that phrase, who wants to live a godly life. There are certain criteria that if you hit the criteria, you are going to find yourself suffering persecution. Meaning, you're going to go to places where persecution is going to be found. And if you're pronouncing that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, there is an incredible chance that you will suffer persecution for your faith. There's a second reason. Now, is it the destiny of many Christians? But it happens as a result of our doctrine. Why do we suffer persecution as Christians? Because our message is one uh, that is inflammatory, to those around us. Chuck Colson uh, says this uh, wonderfully. We see it first of all before I even read that in Acts chapter 9. Look at what it says uh, back in our text. At once he began to preach in the synagogue, speaking of Paul, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. It would later say that he was the Christ. This is important for us to understand because we live in a world of pluralism. And so what that means is your God is okay and you can believe that way. And and this group of people, your God is okay. And and if he works for you, that's okay. And then you guys in the middle, your God's okay. So if my God's okay and your God's okay, then we're all okay. But here's the problem. Uh, We don't say that as Christians, do we? 
The second we say that your God's okay and our God's okay, then we've lost our faith. We have nothing left to hold to. We have nothing left to establish ourselves with. So what happens? What happens? We find ourselves saying, your way is not okay, and my way is the right way. Why do we suffer persecution? Because we're arrogant. Not in a bad way, a negative way, but in the way that we have the right way. We're established in that. We understand that. Listen to what Chuck Colson says. He says, early in the church life, if a person stood up in a public arena and cried, Jesus is God, no one would be offended because the Romans and Greek believed in many gods. To call Jesus God would have not seemed revolutionary or even risky. But if a Christian stood up and shouted, Jesus is Lord and there is no other, he would be putting his own life at risk. Because the Roman Caesars claimed the title of Lord. And this was a central reason why Christians would face persecution. They were willing to obey all Roman laws, but they were unwilling to call the, uh, call Caesar Lord. It is that same struggle over the ultimate lordship which explains much of the persecution that Christians endure in various countries. In a total, a total, I can never say this, totalitarian state, worshiping Christ as Lord can be easily seen as an act of treason. You can say Jesus is a way, but you cannot say Jesus is the only way. It's our doctrine. The next thing is, is a simple response to Christ-like dedication. The text tells us in Acts chapter 9 that after many days had gone, uh, the Jews had conspired to kill him. Now there's a lot of uh, debate on what that phrase after many days means. Does it mean Saul was in Damascus for a period of years? Does it mean that he headed down to Arabia and that uh, this is just a uh, few days in Damascus? We're not sure what it means, but we can understand the following. Saul would have never been persecuted if he was a flash in the pan. If he had just been a guy that had a story that he would share for a couple times, go around and tell some of the people that he knows uh, of how the great, how great God is and who Jesus Christ is, there's a good chance he would have never been persecuted. People would have just kind of written him off and say he's a crazy man. But the problem was Saul didn't give up. And he kept preaching and kept preaching and kept preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what happened? They got, they got irritated. They became aggravated. You look at uh, uh, John's gospel of, uh, of Jesus in the gospel of John. And what do we see? We see this growing hatred for Jesus Christ. And it goes from being something that they're irritated with to something they start to confront to something that they begin to start conspiring. How are they going to uh, bring this man to silence to the point they say, we've got to kill him. Persecution comes as a result of you and I saying not only that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, but we are going to serve Him and serve Him alone. People are going to become angry as a result of that. The next thing we see is the varied reactions. The varied reactions to persecution. Acts 9 describes three common reactions that that can take place when persecution comes. The first one that we see uh, is uh, that we can become fearful of trusting others. Notice the text in Acts 9. This is after uh, many days, uh, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Paul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Now, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Those are uh, followers of Jesus, not the, the 12, but just followers of Jesus. And they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he was really a disciple. 
When we suffer times of persecution, I was reading an article about the house church movement uh, in China. And one of their biggest concerns is being able to uh, distinguish between a true believer and a false believer. The reason why is we have people in our midst today who, uh, who don't trust Christ as their Savior. They may act like they do, and you're sitting there today and you're saying, you know what, I'm here for a myriad of reasons, but I'm not here to worship Jesus Christ. And that's okay because it's not doing anything to hurt you or me, uh, a true worshiper of God. They're sitting here, they may be filling up a space, but nothing more than that. Different in China, because if you're a false worshiper, there's a good chance you're working for the state government. As a result of that, then you open up opportunities for persecution to come to that hidden church, that closed a church, and as a result of that, bringing harm to the leaders of that church and the attenders of that church. This is what happens when it comes to uh, the disciples. In Jerusalem, they hear about this guy named Saul. They know about him. They've seen him. The Pharisee, Saul, the member of the Sanhedrin. And what happens? They hear that he's coming to town. He wants to visit them, that he's had some sort of experience. And so what happens? They say, no, no, don't bring him here. How do we know he's a believer? How do we know that he isn't with the opposition? One of the first things that persecution brings is a uh, a mistrust of others. The second thing that we see is not just a mistrust of others, but the exact opposite. And that is that new friendships can be created. New friendships can be created. The text says in verse uh, 27 that this man named Barnabas, Barnabas means the son of encouragement, and he comes in and he brings Saul to the apostles. Now these are the, the 12. And he brings him and he says, hey, I want you to know Saul's a good guy. Saul did have an incredible experience with Jesus and he's changed and as a result of that he's preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. I find it kind of ironic in uh, verse 24 that here Saul is preaching and the Jews find out about it and they come to get him and the disciples of this new church, the ones that Saul was going to go and try to persecute, they are the ones that are dropping him out of a window in a basket and they're helping him get away from the authorities. I find that ironic because Saul was coming to get those people who probably would have found themselves in the basket trying to get away from Saul. Think about that for a moment, how the tables have turned. These people who were running away from Saul when he was doing his persecuting, now were helping him to be able to get him away from those who were persecuting him. There are new relationships that are built. When Amanda and I uh, were uh, dating, a relationship was built because her family didn't like me very much. They love me now, as everybody else would think. Um, but uh, but they didn't like me very much when we first started dating. And And while that wasn't persecution, it was opposition. And we look back, and even though our dating experience wasn't all that fun, I mean, I mean we had to be home so early, and uh, we had to do certain things if we wanted to go out. Um, it wasn't ever any fun. But what we learned was our relationship grew in the times of opposition. That's when friendships, that's when fellowship grows, is when we understand that there is a war going on. The casualness of our fellowship keeps us from thinking that there's a war taking place, but persecution brings it. So after reactions, what do we see then? We see results. What comes as a result of persecution? Verse 31 tells us. Verse 31 says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria, enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and it was encouraged by the Holy Spirit. 
It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. I used to think that this text meant that persecution ended. When I would read that, I would think, okay, Saul was the bad guy. The bad guy became a good guy. And so now what that means is that there is peace. Kind of like, you know, when Darth Vader's all done, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and them walk into this great uh, um, cathedral and they're given these awards and there's this sense at the end of Return of the Jedi that everything is nice now. This is a golden age of peace. But that's not what happens in the biblical text because we will see time and time again in Acts as Luke continues to write that there's persecution. One commentator said this, it is like being a part of a blizzard and walking into the home and that moment that you shut the door, the blizzard is still going on outside, but there's peace. There's protection. That's what Luke is articulating when it comes to Acts 9.31. The persecution hadn't ended, but there was this sense of peace. There was a sense of protection. There was this sense that God was watching over them. And so what did it bring? In a time of persecution, there are some positive effects. Number one, it allows us to enjoy times of peace. It allows us to enjoy times of peace. Now notice what, what it says here uh, in the first part of point four. It says that uh, there was peace amongst them. Well, how does that happen? How does that happen amidst persecution? i got to be honest with you, I uh, am in a, a season of waiting uh, this last week on, on some news uh, that, is, that could bring me great uh, distress. And I find myself being at incredible peace about it. Even though in my world the, the storm is brewing outside, I find myself more at peace today than I did before I had to deal with this situation. Why is that? Because the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The peace that they had wasn't that it was just a a sense of the persecution being taken away. Commentators said that, yes, it was reduced, but it wasn't eliminated. But the sense of the people was is that there was a peace. God was in control. Why would they think that? Because their greatest persecutor now had switched sides. God was in control. He could change the hearts of anyone who was persecuting them for their faith. The next thing they saw was experience empowered, they experienced empowered ministry. It allows God, uh, to move, persecution does, to other mission fields. Persecution comes, and what happens? Many times we have to leave where we're at and go other places, and so what does that do? It opens up new opportunities for ministry in other places. The text says that uh, there was a spirit of peace and it was strengthened, the church was, and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. We know that in Jerusalem, right after uh, the ascension of Christ, they're all huddled in Jerusalem. They don't want to leave. But then persecution breaks out in Acts chapter, I believe chapter 4 is when it takes place. And what happens? Everybody takes off. I am so glad that first, gen- first century church was persecuted. Why? Because that is the way that we heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's another one. They saw explosive growth. Some of the greatest times of real church growth happens in times of persecution. Look at the example we see in China. More people coming to know Christ in China uh, than any time before when there wasn't communist rule. It's an explosive time of growth. The reason why we see churches in decline today in America is because we don't have that persecution that separates the men from the boys, if you will, and moves them uh, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear or concern. 
Keith and I were at a conference some years back and we were visiting with a Vietnamese house church leader. And I asked him the question, how can we pray for you? And he said this, pray that the persecution does not stop. And I'm like, what are you, maybe I didn't get that in translation right. You're asking me to pray that the persecution will stop, right? He said, no, I want you to pray that it won't stop. I said, why? Because when the persecution stops, we become lazy like you. All right, nice meeting you, sir. Have a good day. And yet he was right. We don't suffer persecution and we're lazy. We're flabby, some more than others. We're, we're, uh, we're weak when it comes to our spiritual muscle because we haven't been tried. We haven't been tested. You ever fought an old, no, some of you haven't. I, I fought some, playfully, fought some older guys in my life. Older guys, you know? And they're as tough as steel. I'm younger than them. They got backaches. Every time they walk around, they walk around like this. But you get them wrestling, you get them fighting or arm wrestling, they'll whip you up. Why? Because they've been around. There's been opposition in their life. There's been things in their life that have toughened them up. And though they look weak, they are strong. That's what a Christian under persecution is like. So some incredible positive effects, but there's some negative ones as well. Extreme pain and suffering. Second Corinthians chapter 11, the same Paul says this. Just write this down. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 27 says this. He says, are they servants of Christ or am I out of my mind to talk like this? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and exposed to death again and again. Five times I re- received from the uh, Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day at the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, from Gentiles. I was in danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger, thirst, and gone without food. I've been cold and naked. There's some extreme pain. There is some extreme suffering that takes place because of persecution. Paul saw it all. The final thing that we see is that it also can bring the end of your life. It can bring the end of your life. Read the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Story after story of people that were killed as a result of their faith. We know that Paul would uh, write in 2 Timothy that he's being poured out like a drink offering, knowing his end is near. And as a result of that, he knows he's going to see the Lord. And tradition tells us that he would die in Rome for his faith. This persecution that he saw in Acts 9 would be the utter end of him at the end of his life. Tradition tells us that most of the men that walked with Jesus would die horrific deaths as a result of persecution. So what are we to do? I need to close this message out. Here's the response. The biblical response We don't have persecution going on. Well, these words help us whether we're being persecuted or not. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's close with this. This is what the text says in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? 
But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, Peter says. But in your hearts, in verse 15, it says, Set apart Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, and keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will for us to suffer for doing good than rather than doing evil. And it continues on beyond that. But let's stop there. Five suggestions that I have for us as we continue to find ourselves living in a time of prosperity and uh, relative ease as Christians, but to always put in our hearts because persecution may be around the corner. Five things that Peter says. Number one, cheer up. Cheer up. If you find yourself involved in persecution, cheer up. Why would we cheer up? The reason why, Peter says, is Because if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus announces, Blessed are those who are persecuted, for they shall see the kingdom of God. So we're persecuted here in this life. So we are harassed. So we're beaten. So we even may lose our lives. What does it gain us? Paul says, for me to die is gain. Why would he say that in midst persecution? Because he would gain Christ and his kingdom. He would gain all the blessings that would come of living with Christ, knowing that at the moment of his death, he would be face to face with Jesus. It's an opportunity. We need to cheer up. We need to be excited about the prospect of persecution because number one, it means that we're doing right. means we're doing what we're called to be doing. And number two, we'll be blessed. Number, the second one is we need to buck up. My dad used to use that phrase, buck up. And what that means is, is you need to strengthen yourself up. Don't be afraid. Don't find yourself uh, crying in the corner as a result of something that has uh, caused you fear. Peter puts it this way. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Why would they be frightened? Because you might suffer for what is right. You may be persecuted. Peter says, hey, if you're going to be persecuted, it's going to happen. So be ready for it. And when it does, make sure you are strengthened to endure under the time of persecution. Don't sit back and say, woe is me. I've got it so bad. But endure just as Christ did. Remember what it said in Hebrews chapter 12? We should consider Jesus who endured such opposition even to the point of dying on the cross. As a Christian, should we not embrace Christ in the greatness of who he is? But Paul says also rejoice in his sufferings. Be a partner in those times of suffering. Buck up. Next, lift up. In a world full of persecution... We must always remember why we fight this battle. We don't fight this battle because we're Americans. We don't fight this battle because of a certain skin color. We are persecuted uh, as Christians for one reason. Because we in our hearts have set apart, Peter says, Christ Jesus. We've made him Lord. And when we do that, we need to make sure not that we do it in the corners of our school or in the quietness of our uh, home, but we announce that to all who will listen that Jesus Christ is Lord. Sanctify, one of the translations means, to set apart. He's the one. He's the only one. And the reason why we lift up his name is because he alone is God. And that may bring us pain, that may bring us suffering, but Jesus is the only one who can save us from sin and we need to worship him for all that he is. The next one is speak up. 
Speak up. We need to be ready to give an answer. Always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason of the hope that we have. In light of uh, all the persecution that we face, we are to give literally what it says is an apology. Not an I'm sorry, but it's our apologetic. This word is a legal defense in a courtroom uh, scenario. Giving the defense of why you believe the way you do. Why you hold to the principles that you hold to. And as a result of that, the Bible says later that we are to preach this, Paul says, in season and out of season. In season means when everybody will high-five you at the end of this service, people say, great message, Tim. Others will say, not your best, but God bless you anyway. But, uh, but what will happen is, is that's in season, when it's right, when it feels good, when, when everything seems to be flowing. But Paul says, out of season as well, when it's hard to do when people may walk away from you, when people may find themselves bad-mouthing you or, or keeping you from the good that you deserve. you got to do it then as well. Finally, shape up. Shape up. It says, uh, how are we to do this? We're to do it with gentleness and respect. Our witness should not be that of arrogance and pride, uh, but it should be one that is gentle, that respects others, keeping a clear conscience so that you, that those who speak maliciously against you, those who persecute you with their mouths... I will see your good behavior and be ashamed of their slander. Peter says later, uh, earlier in the, in the text, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul so that you live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. What is our spirit to be in light of a world of persecution? It is that we should live such good lives among the pagans, among our enemies. And they say, I hate their Jesus, but boy, they're good citizens. I hate the way that they say that the Bible's the word of God, but you know what? They've brought such good to this area. How can we badmouth them? We don't like that they're so intolerant to anything else other than Jesus. But boy, that Sugar Grove or Village Bible Church, boy, they've reached out to the less fortunate. They've gone to places that we would never go to. Even though we don't like them, boy, we can see their good. Can your people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, even though they disagree with you and by law they can't persecute you, can they look to you and say, wow, I don't agree with them. In fact, I stand dead against everything that they do. But boy, I am so glad they are around me. They are good. That is my hope as a boss. That's my hope in my family. That's my hope in my neighborhood. That people won't agree with me all the time. But they will say, even though I don't see Tim's Jesus, I'm a better person because I've known Tim. And the, and the leftovers of that relationship that he has with his Jesus is good to me. Can you say that in your life? My friends, we in the near future, I believe with all my heart, will experience persecution. That's why I think those culture wars are fighting at such a level. That's why this seems that every election and every um, conversation of social and political things is so, so polarizing because there's this sense that we're losing this battle. But understand this, Erwin Lutzer said something that we must remember, and that is to understand that the politics can't do what the cross has done already. And so don't think that you're going to stop persecution 
because of your advancement of talk radio or the culture wars. But understand that persecution is going to come. But Jesus Christ said, they'll persecute, they've persecuted me. They'll do it to you. But live like me. And as a result of us enduring such opposition, we will stand before Almighty God and we will be blessed as a result. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we speak as novices to this subject of persecution. So, Lord, I pray for this body. Lord, a day will come. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be a year from now. But a day is coming, Lord, that we will experience this pain, this trouble. And so, Lord, I pray we will be equal to the task. But, Father, your words of living as we are to live, to follow your example in the book of 1 Peter, is to be lived out today. We are to live such good lives that even though they hate us, even though they disagree with us, even though they desire nothing more than to persecute us, that we would live such good lives that they would even glorify you. They would speak well of you because of what we've done for the world around us. So Lord, I pray that you would let us live that way. And Father, I pray especially now in the world around us. Lord, we've heard about the uh, ministry in Jordan. We've heard in recent weeks about the issues that we see in China and in Asia. Lord, our brothers and sisters are enduring such hardship as we stand in suits and in the warmth of a church, not thinking about the opposition that they face, but thinking about the Bears game at 7 o'clock. Oh, Lord, we have missed your mark this morning. And Lord, we lift up those brothers and sisters who even now today are huddled in a room be around a candle, hearing footsteps around them, trying to stay quiet so that they can continue to worship and not be taken away in prison or be beaten or be hurt in any way. Oh, Father, don't allow us to be so blinded by what we see here in our prosperity that we would ever forget what our brothers and sisters are enduring in all other parts of the world. Father, protect them. And Lord, use them in this time of persecution to be examples to us that we are to worship and praise your name, not just in the good, but when things all go bad. Lord, strengthen them. Father, make their ways straight so that they can continue to carry the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, to the farthest points in the world. Father, that we would be a people that would send out missionaries and that we ourselves would be sent out to help reach those people who hate us, not because of who we are, but because of who you are in us. Lord, we know in the end that persecution will come to an end because the Bible says that the name of Jesus one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. But until then, they will fight tooth and nail to stop your message. But Lord, we see in the life of this first century church that greater is he that is in us than all the persecution that the one in the world has. And because of that, no one can stop us. Give us that victory, Jesus. We love you and we praise you. In your son's name, amen.